0: People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Fine Music Radio and this is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. I've just spent the last week reading a most absorbing and fascinating book called Bullets in the Heart Four Brothers Ride to War by Beverly Roos Muller and the four brothers are all Mullers and this book had an effect on me which anything I've read about the Boer War before hasn't had first of all it was it's very personal and secondly it tells a lot about the Boer side and we're often told a lot about the British side and Dr. Beverly Roos Muller The author is a veteran journalist and broadcaster and former academic lecturing in humanities at the University of Cape Town. She was an anti-apartheid activist in the 1980s, including spokesperson for the multi-organisational Open City campaign opposing the Group Areas Act. She's the co-author, along with her late husband, Professor Ampi Muller, of Für in Se Fingers, about his father-in-law, the poet N.B. van Weyck Lowe. And I love what Max Dupree has written on the cover of this book, the back page. He writes, a precious and rare publication, the moving stories of love, longing and suffering provide valuable new insights into tumultuous times that helped shape South Africa. Beverly, welcome. Beverly.
1: Thank you very much. It's nice to be home.
0: Well, yes, you know, you're very much part of Fine Music Radio, aren't you? But you know what I want to ask you, first of all, among the many questions I want to ask you, is why is it called A Bullet in the Heart?
1: Ah, well, it's got two meanings. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, I really fought for that title because it was really important to me. It's The literal meaning is right at the beginning, Chapter 1, called A Perfect Shot. Mm-hmm. Um, MP's, uh I should say from the beginning, my husband was Ami Muller. That's right, and his both. Who we
0: also knew well here at different. He
1: was uh, he was with Fine Music Radio from the very start as a (laughs) as a presenter, and we met because of our association with Fine Music Radio. So I have a lot to thank (laughs) Fine Music Radio for. We had a very happy marriage. Both his grandfathers had fought in the Boer War, and his. Great-grandfather, who was the Diedrichs, was the most senior boy to die at the famous battle of Marcus Fontaine right at the beginning, 1899 in December, um, of the war, and he was killed by a bullet in the heart. And that was, war was incredibly important. That battle was incredibly important because what it did, it, it was a massive win for the Boers, which was completely unexpected. Mm-hmm. It unfortunately also virtually wiped out the Highland Brigade, who paid a terrible price for it. Um, and it changed the trajectory of the war. So it's, the bullet in the heart is a literal bullet. But it also the war itself and its aftermath became a bullet in the heart for the Boers who didn't want the war, didn't seek it. It was an invasive war hmm. and then ended up paying incredibly bitterly a massive price, as did the black population in South Africa, of course. And so it became lodged as a bullet in the heart of what had happened to them. You know, six of the Boer population died in that war. That is a very large it's number. It's a
0: huge amount. And reading the book, it's, it's a very moving book, I have to say. I mean, I almost imagine you in tears writing parts of it because it really does get very emotional when you hear about the the absolute suffering of these four brothers, and along with the other Boers. And in their longing for home, you have managed to capture the sort of longing of these men fantasizing about their wives and just longing to be home.
1: I think that's true of all wars, you know. Mm. Old men make wars and young men ride out to fight them. And these days, young women, of course, as well. And they're the ones who paid the price for it in the end. I I think that the extraordinary thing about the brothers was three of the four brothers kept diaries. Mm -hmm. And I think I should say now that that is the only known instance of that ever happening. Um, oh, really? So yes. so uh, there's no other record of this happening. And that gave me a unique perspective in gradually discovering them because they weren't there when I started the book. Um, I had to find them first, translate them, unpack them, <laughs> <laughs> and then finally sort of, you know, extract what I could from them. And the interesting thing about them was that they weren't – the sort of brave, bold, you know, uh, you know, I fought, shot, killed, etc. Yes, the so bravado it, it, thing little is little yeah. a little bit of that, like that, in the beginning. Of course, war diaries tend to be a, a bit like that, but they were in the saddle for far less time than they were prisoners of war, and their diaries then write about that, about being prisoners, and it gave them, you know, there's loud heroism, which is the soldier, and there's quiet heroism. And they had to find within themselves the heroism to live without any agency as prisoners of war, both here in South Africa and overseas, in the overseas camps, and, and to try and live with dignity and self-respect, and that's terribly hard for prisoners to do. And they write about it terribly openly and honestly. These are not quiet diaries. Mm. They are very, very open.
0: Yeah, it leaps out at you. You get the impression when you print uh, parts of the diaries, it's incredibly out there in your face, the phrases we use today. But I'm interested, you said something just now, you got the diaries after you started the book. I would have thought it was the other way around, that you got the diaries and then decided, I need to write this book. But obviously that didn't happen.
1: No, that didn't happen. Um, I, you know, th- th- really the book started in a quite a different way. I was beginning to write about another later freedom struggle, and I remembered something that Archbishop Tishi had said to me, as he has had said to many others, which is we will never understand each other Unless we understand each other's stories, and that really made an enormous impact for me, because I did not know the story of the Boer War, except what I'd read in English versions, mm. which are obviously Anglophile. you can understand that they're writing from their own perspective, and also they did not have uh, they were not able to access the Afrikaans versions, they didn't understand them if they wanted to write about them at all. I wanted to write a book that helped me understand the Boer War from the Boer perspective. And the only document that I had to start with was a tiny diary that Ampian had had inherited from his grandfather michael who was the oldest of the brothers it's smaller than the size of your cell phone and that was that was how i began
0: (laughs) my goodness i just want to talk about those diaries and the handwriting and all that but um let's have some music because you've chosen some lovely music rachmaninov's second piano concerto the first movement and is there a special reason for this
1: very much so (laughs) (laughs) when umpia and i first met and uh, no, I'm going on about this a, a bit, but he, but we were incredibly. Not at
0: all. It's a lovely story. You I know, we, you told me once privately. That's <laughs> <Yes. laughs> a lovely story. We
1: met because uh, we were both music presenters at Prime Music Radio, and we met quite accidentally, and fell instantly in love. From that minute on, there, you know, mm-hmm. there was never any doubt, and I had 22 fantastically happy years with him. And he wanted to give me a ring, and he asked. He took me to a designer and said, "You know, ask for whatever you want." And I chose a ring that um, I wanted to be quite, uh, quite fluid, flexible, and to have white gold mingled in with the yellow gold. And she, she said to me, "Can you give me a piece of music to play, which would inspire me to make this ring for you?" And that was I chose Rahman. <laughs> <laughs> Piano, Because it kind of just spoke to me about passion and love and longing. And, and,
0: and so, you played it to her, and this is what you and came this up is, with.
1: And you're holding it in your hand. I and that, am indeed. And that, it's very unusual ring. It is, if,
0: it's also much thicker than you expect a wedding ring to be.
1: Well, it was. we had a durable relationship.
0: <laughs> when did he die, Uncle? He died in 2019.
1: 2019. Which okay. is nearly four years ago, and I can hardly believe it. It's... Uh,
0: Yeah, extraordinary. Let's have Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number Two, part of the first movement. Well, there's parts of Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto. And played there by Vladimir Ashkenazi with the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Andre Previn. And the first choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Beverly Ruas miller whose new book, Bullet in the Heart, published by Jonathan Ball, has just been released and which I've just thoroughly enjoyed. Now, these diaries, you said, about the size of a cell phone, and you've, you've reproduced some of the pictures of these diaries in the book. And the one question I've been meaning to ask you is, how did you decide? They were written in Afrikaans, weren't they, mostly? Sort
1: of, it was more Dutch. It was a mix. It was the, it was oh. pre afrikaans So it was a sort of as Afrikaans as Dutch was moving towards Afrikaans, Okay, okay. nederlands kind of mixture. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. But the writing seems to me to be so small. Yes. How did you decipher it, or did you have to get a professional, whatever you call no, no, to, no, you do th- it, to? it? no, no. This
1: book is homegrown. Every bit of it is me. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but it was actually incredibly difficult. I, in fact, Michael's diary was the uh, Michel, uh, actually Mickey, was his name, the oldest brother. That was P's grandfather, um, and he had inherited this diary. It was very very fragile. But amazingly enough, when I when I began to page through it, I realised that there were over a hundred pages in it.
0: Wow! In um, one diary. In
1: in this one diary, very flattened. It was more like a pocket book, really, mm. a tiny pocket book. And in in fact, he'd run out of paper so he used fragile tissue paper at the end which was packed in the back heart survived i, do, I literally don't know hmm. and it was so fraying that actually the words on the edges of the pages were beginning to disintegrate i used a magnifying glass and Umpi helped me with that diary that was the first diary we had helped me translate into english uh, after that, I got a little bit better at that because I am, you know, fluent in uh, in reading Afrikaans, um, but but it. I decided at one stage that um, it's too fragile to work directly from, so I photographed it, okay. uh, which was a okay. smart thing to do uh, yes. uh, because today it's um, really one can hardly use it, and then the, the second diary came about really a most incredible uh, piece of luck. Ampi um, had this vast family. He was a he was his. Full name was Adrian Diedrichs Muller and he came from the Diedrichs family as well as the Muller family. His uh, his grandfather, Jan Diedrichs, fought in the, fought in the war as well. And his mother was the brother of State President Nico Diedrichs. So he also came from that family. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of documentation from them as well. Um, and so he had, Ampi um, was related to everyone, and I really <laughs> mean everybody. Uh, you know, he, he was related to President Steyn and President Kruger. And I mean, wherever we went, he was related to somebody. So he had the a gigantic family which i don't have because i come from an irish background and i don't have any family here so this was unique for me mm. and I, as we he took me around the country introducing me to people and actually sort of shoved by me about you know pushed by me i asked them do you have war material you know do you have material from the Urloch? i yeah. want you know And the interesting thing is that families don't give away war material; they tend to hang on to Mm. them because it connects them to something that is greater than their own. sentimental and emotional. Yeah. So bit by bit, people started saying to me, "Yes, you know, we've got a letter or a photograph, or my, you know, my great aunt wrote something down or whatever." And this message went out (laughs) across South Africa, and also the University of Bloemfontein were very good in giving me access to their archives, and I started getting parcels and boxes from people and one day I opened a parcel that had been posted to me and a, a little blue book fell out and I opened it and it said Ludovic muller wow. inside and I instantly realized that this was the missing brother, Lul Muller, Lule, yes, Lule. Who, had, who had died in the war mm. and therefore had no descendants. He was only 22 when he rode to war. And so somehow, because he'd had no descendants, there wasn't anybody who really clung on to it in the way that would normally happen. Yes. But somebody said, look, I don't even know if this is your Muller's, but maybe you can use it. And there it was.
0: Wow. How kind people can be as well if they know they're contributing to—shall we call it a worthy cause? Hopefully. Um, <laughs> um, but did each each of them wrote a diary, didn't they?
1: No, there were four brothers. Three of them wrote diaries. The third one was Commandant Chris Muller, and mm-hmm. he wrote eight diaries. In fact, yeah. he wrote nine. One when he seemed
0: to be the most prolific, wasn't he? He was. He, he really came to diaries. was a yes. and a brave man as yes. well. Yes.
1: He was a commandant, which is the roughly the equivalent of a lieutenant colonel. Oh, yeah, yeah, and he wrote prolifically from he was at the Battle of Marcus Fontaine right through to the end of the war. He was a prisoner in Ceylon. He captures all of that including the very controversial uh, announcement that the war had ended yes. but nobody had briefed the Boers that they were actually losing and there were riots in the camp. I mean it, it for weeks and weeks mm-hmm. they simply didn't
0: believe. Which that you it cover was. very vividly as well.
1: Yeah, And that that part I think is not known to people really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the return to South Africa and um, he, he was anti His granddaughter, Colleen, contacted me and said, I believe you're writing a story about the Muller family. I've got eight diaries. Would you like
0: them? Wow, what a (laughs) thing. You must have shrieked. (laughs) Then he died on joy.
1: (laughs) And then had to translate them, which was less joy. But uh, but in fact, it absolutely enriched the book in a way that... wouldn't have happened otherwise.
0: So did you have a sort of idea of what the book was going to do before you discovered the diaries, what you were going to do with the book, and then you discovered the diaries and then it took off in a possibly different direction?
1: Yes, very much so. I mean, well, I think that's true of all writing. Hmm. I mean, I've been been a writer since I was 17. (laughs) But I mean, more recently concentrated on books. Um, And I think writing often takes you, if you are open to what you're reading and researching, it takes you in its own direction in the end. You begin to pick up threads and you begin to follow them. I I wanted to write a book that told me the Boer story of the war because I felt I hadn't heard that. I think a lot of
0: us haven't, just uh, by the
2: way.
1: And that was true. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that that becomes very evident. Yes. Um, And, you know, that's understandable. All wars tend to be written initially by the vectors. And that's what happened in this one. Mm-hmm. And also English, people who can't speak Afrikaans in this country, and that's the majority of people, uh, didn't have access to the Boer versions uh, or didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And so my, my initial reading of the Boer Wars, like everybody else, Pakenham and that's so on right, and so on. Right. But I always had a sense that that was only part of the story. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to write a book which told me what really happened in South Africa. And much of I, I, in the discovery and in my research, I discovered that much of what I had been reading was simply not true uh, because I did a great deal of uh, research, not only here, but in the National Archives in the UK and the Imperial War Museum. Mm-hmm. And, you know, during wars... This propaganda, you understand that. Of course, you know, So the British course. public were told all sorts of rubbish that wasn't true. Yeah. But unfortunately, because that became canonized in the English vol- volumes, the British had this idea that boys were sort of wild and woolly, hairy beings who we w- we weren't very smart and, you know, would be easy to conquer. Well, two and a half years later, they found out that that wasn't true. But to some extent, that notion has carried through to this
0: day. It has, I agree with you Alright Beverly, let's have another piece of music I see you've chosen Leonard Cohen's Suzanne But you are insisting we play the early version Just tell me about, (laughs) about, about this
1: Ah, this um, I wanted something to take me back to my youth when I was, you know, once young and free and beautiful. <laughs> a very long time ago, but it was a wonderful time of my life. I I, I do have to say it. It really was very little money, but a, a red Volkswagen Beetle, like. Everybody had in those days I I don't think I knew anyone who drove any other kind of car And you would settle for the weekend With friends And buy five rands worth of petrol Which would take you right up the car You know, to Plittenberg Bay or even further And back again And and a tent or, you know, whatever And we had in the car an old battery Tape recorder And one cassette (laughs) I think probably some of your younger viewers won't know what a cassette actually is. It's a plastic thing you put in an old-fashioned tape (laughs) recorder.
0: That's right. (laughs)
1: And and this was of Leonard Cohen's early music. And Suzanne was the one that I think of on those young, wonderful road trips that that takes me back to the days when I had long hair and was happy and, you know, we lived like that. And I just want to say that also, I mean, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very heartwarming thing for me. But also, I still think he was a poet, and I still think I was glad when the Nobel Prize for Literature was given to a poet troubadour. But I don't think it should have been Bob Dylan. I think it should have been Leonard Cohen. I still think that to this day.
0: Okay, so this is the early version then of yes. Suzanne with Leonard Cohen. Yes. Let's listen. Mm-hmm.
3: No love to give her Then she gets you On her wavelength Then she lets the river Answer that you've Always been her lover And you want to travel With her I you want to travel blind. Now Suzanne Takes your hand She leads you to the river She's wearing rags and feathers From Salvation Army counters And the sun pours down like honey On Our Lady of the Harbor And she shows you where Amid the garbage and the flowers, there are. with you
0: I think we can say the inimitable Leonard Cohen and the young Leonard Cohen there with his early version of Suzanne, the second choice of my guest on People of Note this week, who is Beverly roos Miller, And we're talking about her fascinating book that's just been published by Jonathan Ball called A Bullet in the Hearts, Four Brothers Ride to War, 1899 to 1902. And... What also struck me that you have picked up, well, presumably from the diaries, is the sort of gung-ho. They were, they were really – they wanted to fight for their country, and they fought, and they fought hard, and then ended up in concentration camps. But the other thing is you spent a lot of time talking about their horses, and I didn't realize how important a horse was to a Boer soldier.
1: Absolutely. The Boers had a civilian army. The British, of course, had a formal army with provisions and a mighty empire to back them up. The Boers, um, okay, let me go back one. Mm -hmm. This was a war uh, of invasion on two separate, independent, and sovereign countries. The Transvaal and the Free State were not one country. They were separate. They were two countries in those days. And the British did not want to fight the Free State because the gold was in Johannesburg. They came here for the gold, no other reason. Mm. They, they gave political reasons, I have debunked most of those in the book. Um, it was nonsense, they came. They wanted the gold. The only way to get to Johannesburg was through Bloemfontein, which meant through the Free State. There was no other route, a railroad to Johannesburg at that point, so they had to. And they hoped that um, President Martinez Stein, the very young, intelligent, President of the Free State, um, he was a lawyer, he had been called to the bar in London. They liked him a lot, they thought he was a marvellous man, he had good relationships with the Cape Colony. They didn't want to fight him. Also, why fight two countries when you only have to fight one? But he knew (laughs) that he couldn't give them safe passage and so they went to war with two countries. And South Africa's huge, it's nearly the size of Europe. Mm. And the British who came out here did not understand that or what kind of terrain they would have to cover. The Boers had a civilian army. They elected their leaders and they would not serve under a leader that they did not respect and
0: trust. Right, which you also bring out strongly in the book, yes.
1: Um, And they were told to go to war. In their best clothes And some of them Went in their Sunday suits Because those were Their best clothes And of course After months in the felt They ended up ragged And in tatters And that's why Photographs of them You know Tend to show them looking like tramps. But that's not who they actually were. Yeah, I
0: wondered, you know, I used to wonder why the Boers always, they didn't wear uniforms. I couldn't work that out. But that came to light in this right. book. It's a, it's a civilian army. It know. was a
1: civilian I army. Mean, and, yeah. and really, there were no formal uniforms except the very most senior generals. And that was, you know, like General Jansma, Louis Botha, and so on. But everybody else just kind of wore, you know, what they had. Every Boer in in both countries was expected to tend a muster once a year with a horse and a gun um, in order to just, you know, make sure. It was part of your civic duty, so to
0: speak. Yes.
1: They all grew up being able to ride extremely well, shoot extremely well, something that the English apparently hadn't noticed <laughs> <laughs> right. and, and they knew how enormous the terrain was mm. so their their war was a commando war, on horseback moving fast, moving quickly um, the English had to stick to the railway track because it was a big lumbering army and was the only way they could get you know, up and down and also the astonishing thing is that they had no map of the Free State when they waged war on them and <laughs>
2: It seems the, bizarre. It's
1: completely it? bizarre. Yeah. And in fact the Royal the Royal Commission on the War in South Africa, which I had the misfortune of reading all two thousand pages of <laughs> <laughs> uh, in nineteen from nineteen hundred and two to nineteen hundred and three, Lord Kitchener actually said to the astonished commissioners, when the war began we didn't have a map of the Free State. And they were so astounded that they had to ask him. To, to repeat that <laughs> answer. So so the the Boers had to have horses. Actually, really, the English should have had horses as well. And uh, a lot of them complained about the fact that they were chasing De who was on a horse and they were on foot. <laughs> so you know, there was that as well. The Boers understood their horses. They were accustomed to the the horses were strong, sturdy local horses. They were accustomed to the terrain, they knew their riders, and their Boers had a very close relationship with their horses. It wasn't just simply you know, something to ride.
0: No, I, I picked up, it was almost spiritual somehow. It, it,
1: it was. I mean, there were times when a horse was shot in a war, where the men would dismount and stand around the horse and pray around it, oh because goodness. it had given its life for them, after all. Mm-hmm. And there were Boer leaders who rode their horses throughout the war. You know, um, Je- uh, President Martina Steyn had a horse called Scott who he said wasn't very fast but very reliable and he rode it throughout the entire war yeah. pensioned it off on his farm at the end and when he, it died he, he wept at its grave um, same with the uh, Uh, General Delaray, who was a master strategist, a tactician and strategist, had a horse who he said was the best watchdog he'd ever had, (laughs) Oppensucker, (laughs) and who saved his life by pulling him over the Makhali River as he held on to his
0: tail. That's in the book as well, isn't it?
1: So Lowell has the misfortune
0: of earlier in
1: the war losing his horse, Mm -hmm. and that begins is the beginning of a tragedy.
0: for Yeah, and then he died. He died yes. of a disease, didn't he? He wasn't shot.
1: He No, he wasn't shot. He was, because he had, didn't have a fast horse that knew him, he was captured outside Lady Brunt mm-hmm. uh, I, I, Probably we should say these Muller brothers came from the Lady Brunt district, which is the far eastern free state, a very beautiful area, right up against what was then called Basuji Land. And um, it, uh, during the Battle of Lady Brunt, he was captured because of, he was on a borrowed horse um, and brought down to by train to Cape Town um, and held at the transit camp in Greenpoint. And he died there, as so many people did in the war of mm-hmm. typhoid or enteric fever. Yes,
0: horrible, horrible, horrible. Just on that subject, on Greenpoint, mm-hmm. I was astonished in the book, just to move away a bit, that Greenpoint, the common, used to be a lake, a flay on which they had yacht races. Which, see, I mean, I thought, what's Beverly been <laughs> <sipping>? smoking? Smoking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yes. And it's true, because they're photographs. You yes. printed a photograph. Yes,
1: indeed. Uh, and they're the paintings and photographs of it. And in fact, if you go through the old newspapers, you know, they sort of rouse about should they or shouldn't they keep this this lake. <laughs> you know, typical newsletters yes. to the editor. Right, <laughs> right. Um, it, well, it was. The, the, the Green Point was a wetland. And in those days, we didn't understand the importance of wetlands. Yeah. So every winter, it turned into this sort of big flare or lake. Right, right. And people had. Uh, yachting regattas regattas, and they had a (laughs) pavilion built i was taking them really very seriously Mm -hmm. and there was a there was a family called the Jurits, the jurist brothers who built lots of yachts for the for the flay and uh, it was it was quite a thing but as cape town expanded and the ratepayers you know started building their houses along towards the seapoint area they got fed up with having this marsh on their hands every winter. Mm-hmm. And so they started petitioning the city council to fill it in. And sadly, we lost the, well, not sadly for them, but sadly for us, I think. We lost the Great play We lost of the Green But it has a direct impact on the war because it had only just been filled in when the Boer War began. It was the biggest mass transit camp. Of the English yes. to bring prisoners of war down to Cape Town and then ship them on overseas. And it turned into an absolute swamp. So san- sanitation became a huge the, problem. A huge yes. problem. And really that's why Lowell died and many others
0: died. And there's that famous photograph that you've also published in your book of all those little tents with their little peaks. And in the distance you can see the famous lighthouse. Yes, which yeah. is still there today. We're going to take another piece of music and Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, the first movement. Which I think everybody loves, but there must be a reason you chose it, Beverly.
1: Yeah, I worry. I I think it's a little bit of a cliche, but it has a real. I I chose it for a very specific reason, and just because it's a cliche doesn't mean to say it it isn't a beautiful piece of music. I think it is. You know, sometimes I wake up in the morning. And you listen to the news and it's so depressing and it's raining in Cape Town and raining and cold and miserable. And you you think of the things that you have to do in the day and you really just don't feel like facing the day. So what I do, and I miss Ampeet to this day as well. And uh, so what I do then is, you know, unless I have no bad habits, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't pop pills. <laughs> so sad to get off. And, and um, so what I actually do is I switch everything off and I take five minutes out and I play this piece of music and I listen very, very carefully to it. And at the end of it, I'm ready to face the day.
0: imagine it having that effect on you Beverly the first movement of Beethoven's 14th piano sonata the Moonlight Sonata played by Vladimir Ashkenazi and the third choice of my guest this week on people of No Chair on fine music radio Beverly Ruiz Miller who's I have to say this magnificent new book bullet oh, in the heart it really was I remember I postponed the interview because I wanted to make sure I'd finished the book before I interviewed you now a couple of questions I want to ask you quickly first of all why did they choose, there was this big camp, Bellevue, was it in Cape, in Simon's Town?
1: Yes, which is another golf
0: course. This is another golf course where, and then from there, where they apparently had wonderful views of the sea and all that, they were shipped off to Ceylon, to Bermuda, to St. Helena. Why, you can understand St. Helena because it's relatively close by and rather like Napoleon. It's sort of an alcatraz sort of place. Why did they send Boer prisoners to Ceylon and to Bermuda? Was the British...
1: And India as well.
0: And India, indeed.
1: You know, it was bad planning. Um, And it was quite clear from the Royal Commission that I mentioned earlier that the British had just been completely unprepared for this war. They Mm -hmm. didn't expect the Boers to fight back. (laughs) And not
0: with such uh, anger and viciousness and and determination.
1: Determination is what I would have said. You know, the Boers were defending an invasive war Hmm. on their own land um, and everything that they had, including their families, were at risk. So of course they fought back, and we don't have to look too far today to actually see that being repeated. But so the Boers had not really—sorry, um, the British had expected the war to be over by Christmas. This is the old story about—you know—they come to South Africa in October, the war would be over by Christmas. Well, of course that didn't happen. They just didn't understand who they were up against, and they had made no—they had made no accommodation for prisoners. So, first people, they came down to Cape Town, and then they put them on prisoner uh, on ships which were, the conditions were atrocious. That caused a public outcry. I mean, some of the prisons were being starved. Um, and so they, eventually they decided that they would build a transit camp in Simonstown, which became actually a permanent camp over the dead bodies of the people in Simonstown who <laughs> okay. didn't want Boers, you know, <laughs> dumped on them because yeah. what would happen to their daughters, et cetera. not actually thinking that they were an armed militia in Simonstown and that the Boers had much more to fear from them than the, Unarmed boys. And, in <laughs> fact, were n- there was no complaints of bad behavior ever at any stage. But, but that filled up, too. Now, the English did a smart thing, is that they very quickly separated the men from the officers. And they took the officers, like Chris, Commandant Chris, and they sent them to overseas camps very, very quickly because the men were very loyal to, to their senior. They had chosen them. They had elected them, and they were really loyal to them. And then slowly afterwards, they, they began to send the prisoners, like Michael, the, older, the oldest one. He went to Bermuda um, because the camps just kept filling up and they, they didn't have anywhere to put them, and the people of the Cape didn't want them here because they didn't want prisoners of war here. Mm. And so they started forcing their dominions overseas to take them and in fact i had to laugh that the the governor of bermuda only announced on the day that the prisoner of warship arrived in bermuda that they were going to be there and then immediately declared martial law so oh, that nobody could do anything
0: about yes, it yeah, how clever <laughs> yeah. but i mean the passages he wrote of the prisoners leaving cape town and sailing out and their, their last look Yes. at their homeland like I think you also like a, a part of your body being amputated and not knowing where they were going yes. or how long they would be away yes. and also the heart wrenching stories of their longing for their wives and children yes. Yes. and the British were very very cruel with the wives and children weren't they in those notorious concentration camps
1: you know, they, the British had been public had been told that this would not be a war that would impact on the civilian population of South Africa, and nothing could have been further for the, yeah, from the truth. Yeah, when they began to lose, they got desperate, and you know, desperate me- measures were put into place. So they started burning burning farms, killing killing cattle, uh, killing livestock. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it um, was as you
0: say, they, they a, decided to scorch, earth
1: yes, and this yes. business
0: of putting salt in the soil so that no plants could Yes,
1: exactly because because as the war went on the Boers could then plant a new harvest the ones who remained on the farms and there were always some and women etc and um, they didn't want that to happen. So 33 villages were entirely destroyed Uh, but I also want to say here and this is really important, there were not only concentration camps for women and Boer women and children there were 66 black concentration camps Wow. And for every which we don't hear which about, which nobody ever talks about or hears about, and in every single one of those black concentration camps, the conditions were worse and the death toll was higher than in any single Boer concentration camp, and that was bad enough.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it had had a massive impact on the black population as well. And after the war, when Milner, you know, came into power in 1902, when uh, after the treaty of verinakan he reinstituted he all the measures that had been in place before the war and all the promises that had been made to black south africans oh, you know if you help us we'll you know we'll do better by you were just simply broken and then black south africans hadn't had no hope left and so was born another freedom
0: struggle yes there we go A- and that's going on isn't it
1: Th- that's still going on and i re- that was why i read the chapter in the book called the awful consequences
0: okay now just before we get to, we'll end with that the awful consequences which apparently you battled to get published um, let's have another piece of music, and it's the Sibelius Violin Concerto, which is a great favorite of mine. And so I'm glad that you've chosen it, but you must have a story as well for this.
1: Oh, well, the, luckily this is a very short story. Um, I have a very special love of violin concertos, um, including the Tchaikovsky, which I also love very much. Um, my, I come from an exceptionally musical family, which I didn't entirely inherit. <laughs> <laughs> and my days of learning the violin were thankfully short with my family. We're very grateful for that. <laughs> However, I do love to listen to it, so I chose this one.
0: Part of that magical opening of the Violin Concerto by Sibelius. And it was another choice of my guest, who is Beverly Ruas Miller. Her book, Bullet in the Heart, is what we're talking about. Four Brothers Ride to War in the Boer War. And your last chapter, you said, what is it called? I'm trying to... The
1: just, Awful Consequences. The, oh, yes,
0: which I think was important to put on when I got to the end and read that. And it's quite a chapter, isn't it? It's quite a chapter.
1: I really wanted to take it beyond the wall mm. because, you know, all wars end and seldom will. And it's quite interesting to read Kipling's comment about the fact that, you know, the, although the British had won, Kipling's comment. Kipling was in South Africa. He saw what was happening. He thought it was an abuse of power by the British. And, he, you know, he actually said that the Boers had given the Brits no end of a hiding, which is a kind of an interesting way <laughs> to describe a win. Um, but but they, they had, there were awful consequences. Boers came back to nothing they had they were self sufficient people they always had been to the men and, of the soil and there were many in professions as well, but they mm-hmm. were used to looking after themselves. they were democrats in the sense that they didn't expect you know anybody else to look after them they they lived their own way as they and many of them had very good particularly in the free state had very good relationships in basjiland and and so now comes a problem. They come back to nothing. In fact, literally in some cases, nothing, mm. not even their families. As you
0: say, not even their families. No, and even, you said yes. 33 towns had, yeah. been, had been demolished and, and vanished.
1: And, you know, the, the, uh, the figure of women and children, I mean, over 20,000 children were died in the camps, many more in the filth, So we don't actually know the number. Mm-hmm. And after the war, there were whole generations of empty classrooms. And the boys did not forget that. Why would they? It was, a, it was bitter for mm-hmm. a war that they had not asked for.
0: Yeah.
1: And so beginning... And for which
0: they had fought so bravely at the beginning, so bravely.
1: Well, uh, you know, some of them took the bitter end right till the end. Mm. And in fact, uh, people like Smuts uh, and Devet and so on fought to the very end of the war. Um, and just to go back to what you were asking about, the, bit, you know, the awful consequences, um, they then had to find a way of making a living. And although the Free State had very little to sustain the Boers, the Transvaal had the mines, and many Boers had to go into competition with black South Africans for jobs that had been previously not their kind of jobs. And so began a new kind of conflict in order to survive. And the awful consequences of that lasted right through the 20th century. And I say, you know, Very often when people start wars, they don't realize how long those consequences are going to be. And everything that happened in South Africa in the 20th century can be linked back to what happened in the
0: Boer War. I absolutely agree. And it it puts the whole thing into curious perspective and the tragedy of it all. And to some extent, the tragedy of the Boer fighting for their country and all that sort of thing. And... You've said that when you had this book launched in Pretoria, you had the most unexpected response from the Afrikaners there, a a response of warmth and admiration because at last their story had been told.
1: I, I was so astonished that it was actually really quite moving and I'll just tell this very quickly is that at the end at the end of my discussion, several people in the audience got up and said, Thank you for writing the book mm. and uh, they were quite moved and then I so was I because it had never occurred to me that somebody would <laughs> say that, but what I was hearing was, Thank you for telling our story and I go back to T. We won't understand each other unless we understand each other's stories.
0: Here, here, Beverly Ruth Miller. We've been talking to you about your your really fascinating book. Congratulations, Bullet in the Heart, Four Brothers Ride to War, uh, published by Jonathan Ball. Beverly, thank you for sharing what sounds to have been quite an experience for you.
1: Thank you very much, Rodney, and thank you to FMR for everything you've ever given me.
0: People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. Oh,